Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation continuing podcast series. We're coming to you today thanks to generous support from individuals, donors, and or corporate partners, including Celgene. My name is Tricia, and today we're chatting with Dr. Raul Tibis of Palmer Cancer Center at NYU Langone Health. Dr. Tibis is um, an MD-PhD director of the Clinical Leukemia Program at the Laura and Isaac Palmer Cancer Center. He's associate professor, NYU School of Medicine, and he's scholar in clinical research, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Dr. Tibis and his lab have contributed to several advances in cancer. He has been involved or provided preclinical data for three new drugs that were ultimately approved in myeloid diseases, thus making his research efforts truly translation to benefit cancer treatment and patients. Welcome, Dr. Tibis, and thank you for being willing to share some of your insight with our patients today. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here on the phone with you. I'm so delighted you've chosen to to help share with patients. I have a few questions for you. Um, I want to kind of go back a little bit in time. You know, we know you've been researching therapies for many years, Um I think that we first heard about your work when you were researching the effects, good or bad, of adding particular vitamins or supplements to cancer treatment routines. Could you please share with us a little snapshot of what you found from that research? Yeah, um, that's an absolutely good question. So many of my patients um, ask what else they can do. When they come to me to see me and being diagnosed with a bomber disease or bomber failure disease, such as MDS, myelodysplastic syndrome, or AML, or some others, um, of course, the treatment plan, the medical treatment plan is very important. And um, at the beginning, it uh, takes precedence, and we need to do the right thing for the patient. But there, there's more to the patient than the medical treatment plan. Patients, One of the most commonly asked questions by patients is, is there anything else I can do, or can I take anything else? And often those, or can anything I take can my, make my disease better or influence my response or my outcome and how I feel. And I think that's the absolute, absolute right question. And uh, we do unfortunately not have too many, um, too many clear guidance from a medical perspective. Um, what is a good supplement to take or what's a good vitamin to take? So that research into taking supplements, vitamins, um, and everything else around the disease that may influence the therapy, we're, we're often still at the beginning. There was a, uh, a very high-impact publication from two lab, uh, laboratories here um, at NYU School of Medicine and the, and the Cancer Center where they described that vitamin C can reactivate certain enzymes that are shut down in MDS and AML. And there were some other papers coming out at the same time. So the idea is, can you reactivate certain enzymes um, in MDS cells and AML cells with vitamin C? And it was published. And based on that, one of my colleagues initiated a clinical trial here. And we treated several patients on that, essentially giving high-dose vitamin C to patients um, with cancer. But I think what that highlights is, that we still have a lot of work to do in learning and understanding 
if supplements, vitamins, how they influence our treatments, how they make patients feel. And I think we're just at the beginning of that whole area right now. But it's of a big interest to me. So, and, I, go ahead. Yeah. No, please, yeah, and everybody here, um, obviously, and to the community in general. So are you, are you saying that you didn't find anything conclusive or instructive to uh, tell patients uh, who, who have, are fighting AML or MDS? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, so, all right, those kind of interventions, I think, should be done on a clinical trial. So really trying to figure out if, if what we give patients a supplement or something else or a vitamin has any activity. So I encourage patients, um, if there's a trial, to follow up, talk to their doctors. There are several trials ongoing with different vitamins and, and different um, supplements and so forth. What I caution my patients is that they shouldn't take anything without letting their doctor know. Because we don't know what is in all of those supplements. I can give you examples where I had patients with breast cancer when I was still practicing solid oncology more than 10, 15 years ago. And then some of them were actually estrogens, and estrogen is bad for breast cancer. Oh, so we yeah. often don't know what it, we, we often don't. And in other ones, some, some herbal medicines, there were amphetamines, and that's why the patient felt pushed. But, that, you know, they can't keep this up. So um, I urge my patients, and I, please, I ask my patients not to take anything before running it by me or by any of their doctors feeding them. I think that's very important to know and to remember. Um, because you don't want to do anything bad with anything you take. Right. Don't don't hurt your potential for success right. by right. supplementing with something that your doctor doesn't know about. Yeah. yeah. And anyway, the patient, I always ask my patients to give me a list, and then I go through the list one by one. And where I am certain or where I've you know, where we have some information and some scientific or clinical data and information that it's okay to give, I say, yeah, sure, take it. But if I don't know what it's doing, I'd rather tell my patients not to take it. That that sounds like very wise way of handling that. And I think I think your your patients must respond well to that because they can see how careful you are with everything that you go through with them, all each of those uh, supplements and prescription meds that they're on. It's actually true. Often when a patient says, well, I'm taking this supplement, and they, don't even, they can't even pronounce the name, and me neither. I try to Google it, or I ask them the next visit, just bring me the bottles, bring me the physical bottle so I can take a look at it. Terrific. That's, that's the, other, the other thing, I, I tell you some anecdotes, the other thing, see, because it's a podcast, is, you know, it's very, I should do, get to know the physicians that do research on, 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 on our patients' behalf, and I'm one of them. Um, I tell my patients, if you take something and we see a dramatic response that I wouldn't expect, I'm the first one to research it in my, in my laboratory. I, I have an own lab, laboratory. because, Or if there's two or three other patients taking the, the same something else and all of a sudden we see responses. So I'm willing to learn from patients. We just have to do it in a, in a, in a controlled way and we can't just take everything and then say, well, it's going to work. Because very often there's so many other variables and other things at the same time that we truly don't know what is doing what. So we just need to study it and understand it better and be careful for the safety of our patients. Well, well, that makes sense to be do it in a controlled method if, if they're going to. If it's not something that you know they shouldn't take that it would not be good for their treatment. That's, that's, yeah. that's, that's really interesting and exciting. Um, 
But more recently, you've been working on the genetic level with bone marrow failure diseases with um, hedgehog pathway in, inhibitors. Um, mm-hmm. That's right. That's a, that's a genetic that's, mutation. That's correct. Well, the hedgehog pathway is actually interesting. It's uh, a lot of the genes, when they're initially named, they're named um, when they're found in the fruit flies or some uh, lab animals. And actually, the fruit flies, if you, if you take out the activity of one of the genes, they curl up, they curl up like a hedgehog. And the hedgehog yeah. pathway is a very, is a very um, essential early developmental pathway. So when there's an embryo in, in certain animals, but also in humans, where the, essentially when the a being forms and they're like growing out limbs and growing out arms and whatever... There are some hedgehog pathway um, molecules and, and substances being secreted that help the body form essentially. So it's a very embryonic or embryonal developmental pathway. So there are mutations in the gene called patched in basal cell cancer. And basal cell cancer is the most frequent skin cancer. Fortunately, that's the, that's the skin cancer that you can often or most of the time you can cut it out. However, a few percentage of patients you can't cut it anymore or um, even basal cell cancer can spread. And myself, together with a colleague, we were actually the first one in the world giving um, the first ever smoothened or hedgehog pathway inhibitor to a patient, to a cancer patient with metastatic basal cell cancer. It was many years ago in my first faculty position. And we saw a dramatic response within two we- week or two weeks. The patient was on oxygen. He couldn't breathe. That was because the patched mutation activates um, the hedgehog pathway. And then we can give a hedgehog inhibitor. It's actually a smoothened inhibitor. Um, that's another gene in the pathway, but essentially it's a smoothened hedgehog inhibitor and that's take or deactivating this pathway again. And based on that, many more patients have been treated. And eventually this led to the approval of, of smoothened or hedgehog pathway inhibitors in, the, in basal cell skin cancer. However, I'm a leukemia, MDS, bomber failure doctor, and my research in that area. So I took my, my early career moves and brought them into the laboratory for, for, for bomber failure patients. And I tested hedgehog inhibitors together with azacitidine or Videza, which is a drug that's often used um, uh, for patients with MDS or AML alone and now in combinations. And we tested it and we found it can sensitize. So a hedgehog inhibitor can work together potently with a standard drug by DASA or azacitidine, which is the generic name. Based on that, my colleague at the Mayo, when I was still at the Mayo Clinic, leading the leukemia program at the Mayo um, in Arizona, I, uh, we did a clinical trial. We had 60 or 70 patients on that clinical trial combining a hedgehog um, inhibitor together with um, azacitidine. And we presented those results on, a, uh, on several um, abstract and we saw activity in those patients but what's important there was uh, many companies then or several companies are in the process of developing hedgehog inhibitors and one of those other hedgehog inhibitors they actually also combined it with a low dose of chemotherapy and that hedgehog inhibitor is now approved for older AML patients in combination with low dose cytarabine and cytarabine is a chemotherapy drug that's often given to leukemia patients. So now we have a hedgehog pathway inhibitor that is approved indeed for AML patients in combination. And uh, we did a little different combinations and we're still working on, on trying to understand which one are the patients that responded in our trial. 
because the trial is closed, we're no longer taking patients, but we're still analyzing the data and we're doing some molecular studies and analysis, learning and trying to understand which are the patients that we could resensitize. Because for some of the patients where the standard therapy failed, if we were adding the hedgehog inhibitor, we saw dramatic res- or we saw very good responses again, and the patient did well for a long period of time. So wouldn't it be nice to add a drug to Videsa when it stops working and gain another response? So that's my current goal, and that's my involvement with it, the whole hedgehog pathway and, and field. So I've, you know, ever, ever since more than a decade now, I've been involved in that research and those studies. Well, so let me see if I understand, because you know I'm not I'm I'm not a clinical scientist. When um, you have these um, hedgehog inhibitors involved in combination with another medication, um, either chemotherapy or some other treatment, you can make the cancer cells more sensitive to the therapy medication so it ends up being more effective. Is that right? I I don't know if I have that that right. You said very well that that is the current thinking and that is what we think. And... um, and that, that's correct for the most part, yeah. So can you sensitize the two drugs with each other? How, how do the patients um, feel? I mean, are there a lot of side effects when you ha- add the hedgehog inhibitors that are different or more profound than when you're just uh, using the, the one chemo or other uh, drug? So in, in the clinical trial that I was running, I would say overall it was rather well, very well tolerated. Some patients had a little cramp. They were tired. The question if they were more tired or if the disease was just more advanced and, and um, there are some abnormalities in the electrolytes. Um, so there are some side effects, but it's, it's, it's manageable and um, it's not excessive, I would say. That's excellent. That's really good news, especially since there are studies with the older pa- leukemia patients. Mm-hmm. And you did, such, uh, you did 60 to 70 patients in your clinical trial. That's a huge number to be able to have. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm sure that as yeah. you continue to analyze all the data you've collected and study those um, slides that you kept and, and the samples that you kept from the patients, um, I'm sure you're going to come across some more information that's going to uh, lead you in the next step. Is that what you're expecting? Yes, absolutely. Because <clears throat> it's, it's also understanding what medications and what therapies work in what molecular circumstances. Because in MDS or AML, abomer failure, particularly MDS, AML, and, and the more aggressive ones, there are many subtypes. Even if it's the same name, there are many molecular groups that have different genetic or molecular features that drive the leukemia. Those molecular drivers of, of, of cancer progression and formation, and then if the therapy does something against all of these or just subgroups of these, you know, a certain group of patients that have a certain feature and that gene or a certain molecular abnormality, that's what we call this biomarkers or predictive biomarkers. So it would be nice if a patient or all the patients would respond the same way to, all, to one drug, but unfortunately that's not the case. So we may only find subgroups of patients that respond to a drug or certain drugs. So now we have many more drugs available 
particular in AML over the last couple of years, there were six, seven or eight new drugs approved. But now we can further define and learning and, and finding groups of patients that respond even better or, or which are the patients that do respond. So this is the kind of research I'm, I'm doing in my lab and other investigators as well. Because ideally, at some point, we want to have a molecular test, and then we want to have a high probability or prediction or to tell the patient, hey, you have a very high chance that this drug is going to work, or you have a very low chance, so I'm not going to give it to you, a particular drug and treatment. And the more we learn, and the more medications we have, the more we can choose from. And knowing the molecular underpinning of each disease will help us select appropriate therapies. So it, do you, across, across the U.S. at any rate, when a patient is diagnosed with AML or MDS, are they able to ask for, or is it usually recommended that they have this molecular testing? Or is that something that, that is so new that most places aren't doing it yet? Where are we standing in that? And should patients ask for it? Well, that's a very good question. Um, so there are some clinical standard molecular markers that are also recommended and that recommended by guidelines that should be tested in every AML and MDS patient. And there are different ones for AML or MDS. Often they are the same because the disease are related. They're not the same, but they're related. Um, so yes, there are some, some tests and some, some markers that should be always tested when a patient is diagnosed or when a patient is progressing and the disease is getting worse or failed to respond to a previous therapy. And then there are the so-called next-generation sequencing, which means hundreds of genes are being tested for defects or activation of the gene in that particular MDS or AML. Some of the centers do it upfront to get a really deep and broader understanding of what potential genetic defects are in those MDS or AML cells. And other centers do it when patients progress or when the standard therapy doesn't work to maybe help us select some other drug based on the molecular genetic profile of that cancer. So yes, they're standard, but and there's also some some clinically often used next generation sequencing panels, how we call them, but they're not standard for every patient and everywhere. Okay, I think I think you explained that really well. I think I understand that there's some there's some testing on the molecular level that is done by everyone, and then there's other tests that can be done when um, the health team, the medical team, the professional hematology oncologist are um, involved when they see, when they want either a baseline or they see that there's not enough progress in um, recover in in progress against the mach- the disease or when the disease is progressing against the patient uh, or in spite of the treatment. Is that right? That's right. And that was very beautifully summarized. <laughs> You're very kind. For the understanding of it. You know, one of, I wish I always would make it so easy as you just did. <laughs> uh, for MDS, one of my patients once told, once told me, it's like, oh, so you mean a lazy bone, mar- bone marrow. So I said, yeah, that's an easy way to say it, lazy bone marrow. Oh, perfect. So that's, not making that's great, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. I'm going to use that. Yeah. Thank you for the tip. Yeah. <laughs> So the last question I have for you, Dr. Tibis, yeah. is um, 
there's a lot of patients who are listening or who will be listening through this enduring podcast. Is there Mm -hmm. anything particular you would like for patients to know, either um, questions they should ask their physician or something they should know that will help them um, navigate their treatment better or um, something that will, will help them get through what they're what they have to do better. Do you have any words of wisdom for patients? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's very important. Um, you're right. I always tell my patients, you are the patient, so it's your body. So always ask your doctor. Don't be afraid of, of asking your doctor. And if your doctor doesn't answer, ask him again. And if he doesn't give you the answers, you know, there, there are the doctors. Um, but I never give up. We're making progress these days. Um, and tomorrow there could be another drug or a new drug approved. And if you're in the situation and that you need some treatment, there's no standard, look for a clinical trial. Um, it helps give, may give you a chance. It helps you understand your disease better because we all, all in it together for the fight and take one day at a time. Um, it's hard to do sometimes. I don't. I, and I can't imagine what it means as, as a patient. But sometimes we do have to take one day at a time because we don't know the outcome or if a drug will work or not. Choose your doctor wisely, and it's okay to get a second opinion. And probably also go for, because those diseases we are talking about, they're common, but they're still very rather rare. So I would advise um, go to a center that sees more of those patients um, with MDS, AML, plastic anemia, where the doctors have a little bit more experience with that. You could then share if you're living away from a big center where they have a center that treats those diseases, but your doctor, local doctor, can communicate with the doctor at the expertise in the, at the center. So I do this frequently. Um, I, I see patients in the community centers, and then they come to me every so often, and then a lot of the treatment and follow-up can be done with a local doctor. So it's about communication and building a patient care team um, together with the patient, other physicians, and, and you know, that's pretty good experience with that. Well, I can, I can tell in your voice your passion for your patients, and I know <laughs> that they appreciate that so much. And I appreciate yeah. how you've given some really great um, information and also words of wisdom for the patients I, who listen today. I have one last word of wisdom. Um, I'm always, I'm always touched by the dignity of, of my patients in face of their disease. So there's a tremendous dignity we humans have. So I, you know, I congratulate and applaud all of the patients I'm dealing with that, and I wish them all the best. And I will do my part to find new therapies. Thank you. Thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you for what you're doing. It's my pleasure to be involved with the society and other societies. And um, um, thank you very much for inviting me today. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for being with us again. Remember, you can find out more about all types of bone marrow failure diseases on our website at aamds.org, through social media, and you can chat with your peers online at marrowforums.org. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.